created the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm your host, Emily. And I'm your host, Rebecca. And we are going to talk about stories because that's what we're here to do. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Do you think we should introduce each other to the to the audience or should we introduce ourselves? No, let's introduce each other. That's a cute <laughs> idea. Emily is a newly accepted PhD student at the University of Dundee. She is a gothic literature queen and she is my best friend of five years. We also live together. It's Rebecca. She is a current creative writing student also at the University of Dundee. You are a publishing queen (laughs) (laughs) and shortlisted many writing adventures. Yes. (laughs) I've just spilled wine all over my notes. Oh, great. That's a good start. <laughs> so we have some watercolour party <laughs> going on on my notebook. Right. Do you think uh, we should also mention that we do normally live together? Yeah, yeah. So we do normally live together, but it is lockdown, so we don't live together right now, which is sad. But we get to have a phone call once a week, and now we get to make a podcast out of the phone exactly. call. Exactly. So. Now we're recording it, because I'm sure everyone else is going to enjoy it. Yeah, I think that they would enjoy our weekly thoughts to each Mm -hmm. other. So that's the whole point. So Emily, let's get down to it. What are you infatuated with this week? This week, I thought I would start us off with a bang and I'm Mm -hmm. going to talk about a series of books. All right. So this is the Stalking Jack the Ripper series by Kerry Maniscalco. And I came across this in quite a like weird, fateful way. I was on Cassandra Clare's Instagram. Naturally. Um, she's like an author I'm obsessed with. And she often reposts like fan art like of her characters. She also commissions artwork of her characters, which I think is really cool. Cute. And yeah, an artist called Gabriela Bejoso, I've probably butchered that name, I apologise, that she's been creating this amazing series of Cassie's characters as like tarot card oh. figures. And I actually have one as a lock screen on my phone right now because it's very pretty. Yeah, anyway, I was looking through her Instagram and then came across four images, which I immediately loved. They're really pretty. And then once I clicked on them, I realised that each of them was a different book from this series. Okay. So I generally bought the books like then and there. I was like, like, this artwork is so cool. I'm going to buy the books. I don't even know what they're about. (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, I'll I'll put her Instagram in the show notes because she always does art of book characters. So I feel like anyone who listens to this will probably enjoy it as well. Yes. Okay, so... Stalking Jack the Ripper, it's a four-part series written by Kerry Maniscalco. There is Stalking Jack the Ripper, Hunting Prince Dracula, Escaping from Houdini and Capturing the Devil. The first one, Stalking Jack the Ripper, came out in 2016 and the last one came out at the end of 2019. Gee, she's just um, a busy lady. I know. She's got one coming out as well, like a, like a new series, I think, at the end of this year. So the series is told from the perspective of 17-year-old Audrey Rose Wadsworth. She's a lord's daughter whose secret pastime is working in her uncle's laboratory 
Um, she studies anatomy and forensic medicine. So, like, bear in mind, this is in 1888, so that's very taboo. Yeah. Her mother died when she was younger. Naturally. And so she has this macabre obsession with death. Um, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> why you like this book already. Oh, it's so funny. It's not, like, my normal interest, though. See, our father is very protective of her because he doesn't want her getting sick like her mother did. She still loves shopping, though. Which, oh, cute. Really we love, to. like, a feminist icon. Exactly. I've actually got a quote. Yeah, so she says, I was determined to be both pretty and fierce, as mother had said I could be. Just because I was interested in a man's job didn't mean I had to give up being girly. Who'd define those roles anyhow? Fucking yes! So we love that. Yes. There's also a really great quote from her cousin, Liza. I think you'll like this quote. She says, no man has invented a corset for our brains. Oh, shit. She did. She did that. So we stan. We stan, stan, Liza. (laughs) I love that. I love the idea that it's like, obviously, like a bra for your brain. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see how that tracks through the book. (laughs) Just like we get to the feminist movement and Liza is like loving the bra burning. She's like, yes. (laughs) <laughs> to be fair you're, you're not far off <laughs> okay so Audrey Rose also has a partner in crime solving there uh, yes. Mr Thomas Creswell he's the kind of male character that I always fall for <laughs> he's is he very tall? yeah he's very tall mm. uh, genuinely I think he's meant to be six too he is very dashing and charming and even though he's from a very important and wealthy family, he's a bit of a scoundrel and a massive flirt. So Thomas, as it happens, is also her love interest, obviously. Shock. So the series is about their relationship as partners solving crimes, but also their growing romance, which I should add is not a spoiler because they get together really quickly. It's the Victorian era. You like you yeah. meet someone, you marry them, basically. So... I'm not spoiling it by saying that they get together. Oh, I love that. I love that it's like, that's not like a plot point. It's like, a, yeah, we're partners and now we're partners, partners. And like, this is how we roll now. Yeah, exactly. Aww. Like there's there's a couple doubts and there's a couple wrenches thrown in like as it goes. But they are pretty much together from the start. It's, it's Aww, very cute. I love that. So the first book, Stock and Jack the Ripper, obviously takes place during the Whitechapel murders. And what Carrie Maniscalco does is take facts from the real crimes and then she applies them um, so that Audrey Rose's life is an apprentice for her uncle. And it ends up taking a turn into something very personal. So I won't say any more than that, but Jack the Ripper is someone she knows, which again is not a spoiler because it's literally on the blurb of the book. That's cool um, though. But yeah, it's what I like about it. It's famous real stories, but it's in this gothic literature like Mm. universe it turns books that you already know and stories that you already know into something new so yeah moving on to book two which is hunting prince dracula and that this is my favorite one naturally because it's dracula it's not about bram stoker's dracula though Um, it's actually about the lineage coming down from vlad the impaler i'm about to butcher some romanian Really sorry, guys. The two main branches that come down from Vlad the Impaler are the Dineshti and the Draculishti. 
but yeah I, I didn't really know a lot of the information about Vlad Tepes like the real mm. quote-unquote Dracula so this book takes place in Bram Castle uh, which is near Brasov in Romania which is a place I've been desperate to go to for years supposedly the place that in- inspired Bram Stoker when writing his novel and Vlad Tepes stayed in it at some point as well wasn't I don't think it was actually his castle but he has Mm. like associations with it and what Maniscalco does is turn the castle into a forensic medicine academy so that's totally made up but it's a really good set so can't argue with that (laughs) all the good things we've got like crimes and medical things and then we have vampires is uh, this might be a spoiler are there vampires no, there's not. There's um, not. So I'll I will go on to this, but it's it's an interesting look at do you believe the age old myths or do mm. you go with your scientific brain, which is right. like the the issue that they have. So yeah, Audrey Rose and Thomas go there to study, but their classmates keep showing up dead. <gasps> and the bodies look as if they've been killed by vampires. So they're all drained of blood and they have oh. the like the bite, you know, marks. bite marks on their mm. neck as we were just saying it's really interesting look at debunking vampires so in Romania there are I think still are lots of believers in the Strugoi which is like their mm. vampires so they're caught between their very scientific analytical brains and fallen for the mysterious surroundings and I thought I would include a little quote here from the folklore class that they have to take where Audrey Rose demonstrates that analytical brain Mm. I feel like I'm slurring over analytical there. So yeah, this week quote, her teacher says, most superstitions have some basis in fact. Take Strugoi, for instance, there must be some truth behind those rumours. I want to point out that the legends regarding Strugoi were likely the result of not burying bodies far enough underground during winter. Bodies became bloated with gases and pushed out of their graves. Nail beds receded, making hands look like claws ghastly and vampiric in appearance but not practice to the uneducated it would most certainly seem that their loved ones were trying to climb out of their graves however science proved that was simply myth damn i know i did not know that neither did i but that makes sense (laughs) that is terrifying i know that is genuinely horrifying (laughs) (laughs) so can you imagine being in that era and then just like somebody starts climbing back out of their grave (laughs) yeah you don't have the science to say they're still dead i know exactly (laughs) traumatic man (laughs) anyway but back to the stories (laughs) sorry (laughs) it's the wine (laughs) okay it's been uh, a long week everyone but yeah there are hidden passages there's like a whole labyrinth under the castle it also, this book has a scene that literally kept me awake at night because it was so horrific <laughs> that oh. I couldn't sleep after. Oh. Um, so yeah, I don't want to spoil that one because it is great, but I will just say um, spiders. Oh no. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to the third book, which is Escaping from Houdini. This is a really fun one because it's all set on like a luxury cruise liner, so it feels very classic murder mystery, like they have mm. a week to solve the crimes because that's how that's long like, everyone's going to be stuck there. And there's a moonlight carnival on board and they host a dinner entertainment every night of this week-long voyage. 
And as the title suggests, Houdini is part of the entertainment. It's when he's like an up and coming guy. So I, okay. I think he's about like 17 in the books. Okay. Um, it's like the same age as them. Yeah, it's really cool actually. Through all the books, there's a bunch of old photographs and stuff. And she's put in photos of Harry Houdini like quite early on in his career. It's really cool. Oh, that's really, I like that she's done that. That's like a risk because if you bring too much like, oh, remember this is real mm-hmm. to your like fictional story, like you could risk losing the like suspension of disbelief there. Yeah. But yeah, like I imagine it just adds to it if she's done it well enough. Yeah, I think so. They're, they are like few and far between. It's not like there's a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. everywhere that like reminds you like, oh, this is a real story. Because mm. most of it is fake. Like, yeah. That's fun of it. It's like finding the little Easter eggs for like mm. people who know about like true crime and stuff. It's, it is interesting. Obviously, people end up getting killed on this voyage. Mm. We're still in the same series. <laughs> Happens every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the bodies show up positioned like the images on tarot cards and playing cards. Um, oh, so that's very killing you. Really interesting yeah yeah exactly it's this really interesting link between like the carnival there's a lot of talk about fate and choosing your own destiny and this is the book where audrey rose is questioning her path she's considering marriage to thomas but she doesn't know if she actually wants to get married at all Mm. she wants to know if she can actually make a life for herself as an investigator or if society is just going to say no and i think there's like a part of her that's so used to breaking the mold that she wonders if marrying someone even if it's the love of her life will that make all of her rebelliousness <laughs> obsolete um, it's a really great third book it's one where there's a lot of questions but it's mm. like it's in a good way it leads to a conclusion oh I like that I like that idea of her like questioning almost cutting her nose off to spite her face mm-hmm. yeah Whereas Thomas oh. is just like, I'm all in, man. <laughs> so I'm here. Well, I'm ready to we go. We've got a Luke and Lorelei situation going on here. <laughs> yeah. So the final instalment is Capturing the Devil. Mm. And it is about who I think is one of the most fascinating serial killers, which is H.H. Holmes, who's often referred to as the Devil in the White City. He is infamous for creating his murder castle in Chicago, which was a hotel that he built essentially into a torture chamber. Every room was a different method of killing someone. There was shoots that would lead to like the incinerator and yeah. Fucking hell. Scary. He would hire builders and then fire them after like I think it's like two weeks or so so that no one ever knew what they were building. This is very <laughs> I feel like Angela Carter would have a real field day with this. Sounds like something that she would have written for yeah. sure. <laughs> This is the one that I could really get in trouble with over spoilers because it is the last book. So I'm not I'm not really going to talk much about it. But I will say it is the culmination of all their months of research. A person from their past comes back in a very intriguing Ooh. way. And it's still got loads of personal drama. So yeah, it's a good ending. Nice. Uh, I, I liked it. It was, it was a good conclusion to the series. I thought I'd dedicate a little bit of this to talking about the relationship between Audrey Rose and Thomas. So obviously this series is set 1888-1889. So there are different rules and expectations when it comes to relationships and marriage than there is today. No. 
as we've kind of already discussed, Audrey Rose is quite a radical woman. She wants to solve crimes, even though she loves Thomas. She doesn't know if she wants to be married to anyone. When you marry someone in the Victorian era, the husband basically owns everything. Yeah. Even if he were to divorce you, you would be left nothing because he would have the claim to it. Mm. So you'd be left, you know, homeless. Your family might not want you back in their house. So Yeah, going to one of those awful workhouses. Yeah, exactly. Not the one. No. On the kind of flip side of that, Thomas is also quite modern. He wants to marry her, but only if she chooses him. He's very clear, like, I want to marry you, but if you don't, that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) We'll do something else. Like The dream. Yeah. He talks about, oh, I'd love it if you took my name, but like, you don't have to. (laughs) It's like, it's very much that kind of uh, relationship. And there's also a really interesting conversation about sex before marriage. Again, in the Victorian era, a woman can be branded quote-unquote ruined if Mm. she has sex before marriage, whereas the guy, it's just kind of like, it doesn't really affect him in the slightest. And there are a couple scenes where they're like, should we just have sex now? Mm. (laughs) I'm enjoying myself. And then they end up talking themselves out of it and be like, nah, we need to be proper. But I actually really liked those scenes because I think we often read about Victorian women being either the whore or the angel yeah Um, and here Carrie just writes her as a 17 year old who really loves someone and wants to be with them in every way possible and I just think it's really nice (laughs) yeah that's sweet and like you you could probably put her sort of reservations like that doesn't need to be confined to the Victorian era obviously her her society is putting that on her but like if they're doing it in that way where it's like they're like they're maybe gonna go for it and then they maybe don't mm. like that's quite normal anyway oh, and yeah, I feel like yeah. I feel like a lot of teenage fiction at least when we were growing up didn't really have that mm, yeah like there wasn't a lot of starting and stopping <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah I just wanted to finish off this wee section on their relationship by doing one of my favorite quotes which is from quite early on in the book so this is when they're still kind of trying to work each other out, deciding if they like each other. And in this scene, basically what they've done is they've met in like, a, I think it's a restaurant. He buys her a flower, but then he lights a cigarette and she does not like that. I cannot believe you'd buy me a beautiful flower only to ruin it with smoking. I said, scowling, how incredibly rude. Smoking in front of a girl without her permission was against social mores, but Thomas didn't seem to care for that rule one bit. I set the orchid down, staring at him through a fringe of slitted lashes, but he only took another drug, slowly letting the toxic air out before dismissing the waiter. He reminded me of the caterpillar from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, sitting upon his giant mushroom, lazing about without a care in the world. If only he were small enough to squish beneath my boots. (laughs) That's a disgusting habit. (laughs) So is dissecting the dead prior to breakfast, but I don't scorn you for that unseemly habit. In fact, he leaned closer, dropping his voice into a conspiratorial whisper. It's rather endearing seeing you up to your elbows in viscera each morning. Also, you're quite welcome for the flower. Do place it on your nightstand and think of me while dressing for bed. Smooth. Exactly. <laughs> yes, okay, I can see why we love him. <laughs> it's a lot of, like, they make jokes at each other's expense. and Ooh. But you can tell they, like, very much respect each other. It's never, like, mean yeah yeah oh that's Uh, good though so yeah what I love about these books is the way that Carrie 
twist perceptions on the people in text that she's referencing. So, for example, she finds a way to relate Jack the Ripper's murders to Frankenstein, which I think oh. is really cool. And in Capturing the Devil, there are lots of Jane Eyre references as well, especially oh. in relation to marriage. And I've read books before where the references feel forced or like mm. they're just being used as name drops. Mm. But I, I feel like because Maskelk was using figures from real life and melding them with literary references, it doesn't feel heavy handed. Even when Audrey Rose talks about books that she likes, it doesn't feel like it's simply being dropped in there to amp up the gothic appeal. It's like there's normally a reason for it. Right. Yeah, um, like based on the character or something. Yeah, exactly. And it all feels very well thought out, which and I think that's why I liked hunting Prince Dracula the most, just because it balanced the act of vampire lore, literary mm. vampire lore, and a real figure from history. Mm. I'd also like to add that when I went on Carrie's website to like get the dates that these books came out, I noticed that she has playlists to go with all her books on Spotify. Oh, that's <laughs> and, so you. And it honestly just makes me so happy because I have a playlist for the novel that I'm working on. <laughs> And I just feel like one day when that novel's published, I can put that playlist public. When people are going to fangirl over that playlist, there will be people in their bedrooms being like, I'm going to discover shit off this playlist because this person (laughs) wrote their book to it. You're going to be the new Bright Eyes advertising team. Oh my god, (laughs) I do have bright eyes on my playlist. Naturally. (laughs) So yeah, that's it. That is a series I really enjoyed. I think it will come in handy for my PhD as well. I'm sure I'll end up talking about that one here at some point. And yeah, I'm looking forward to the start of her new series. I think it's called Kingdom of the Wicked. It sounds like it's about witches, I think. And that is me. That's my topic today. That was so well researched and so well put. And I just, well, we're going to expect something different from me. Is all I'm going to say. <laughs> We both have uh, very different styles. I think people need to learn that quite early on. Yeah, I think this is going to be indicative of things to come. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so e- Emily's probably been working on that in her head all week. I decided what I was going to say yesterday in three hours. So, <laughs> but it was an intense three hours. Like I thought a lot. I, I can believe that. My infatuation this week is a book that I read a little while ago at the start of lockdown, but actually is the one that got me to start properly start my novel um oh, and great. it is milkman by anna burns oh i've um, heard about this yeah i'm so late to the party it won the man booker prize in 2018 and it's one of the big texts in the sort of female irish renaissance thing that's happening right, just okay, now. yeah it had a whole moment and i just well i didn't miss it i bought it for my mom and then she took like a year to read it okay (laughs) um but then she finally did so i read it to put it in context for people that like dairy girls normal people either the book or the tv series or any of sally rooney's work and also i've just ordered hazel hayes debut novel out of love and from what i've read of her i think it will be like a similar vibe but milkman is weird like the it's a hard book right. so like I don't want to put anyone off but like this is a this is not a light read mm-hmm. <laughs> so um but it's great to like kind of get your teeth into I'll explain 
bit. I'll try not to give any spoilers. Milkman is a novel from the point of view of an unnamed girl in a small, pretty sure it's northern Irish town, but I could be wrong about that. And if so, all the Irish people will be angry. Most of it's kind of a story of inaction in that not that much actually happens. But because not that much actually happens, it's all very like small conversations, small interactions that take place. And it's her processing them in her head and sort of picking them apart. And it makes it so tense and so insidious. It really reminded me of Rebecca, actually. Oh, really? Um, the, the narration style, like it's obviously not the same kind of language. Yeah. But it's not far off, actually. It's quite, like, um, overblown in yeah. long sentences and big, complicated explanations. Yeah, so, what you're saying about, like, all the small moments as well, like, that's how I associate Sally Rooney's work. Mm-hmm. Not a lot happens in normal people or conversations no. with friends. Yeah, exactly. It's just all very, like, the tone of what happens yeah. or the subtext of what happens. Yeah. So, yeah, that's why, I mean, it really fits into, like, that genre But it does have that kind of Irish humour about it where it's very like deadpan, like a little bit sarky and like really taking the piss out of itself. Like it knows it knows that like all of these things are ridiculous, but it's taking them so seriously. But it knows that it's taking them too seriously. It's really good. It's literally (laughs) anxiety in a book. (laughs) Okay, great. So it's set during the troubles and it's just her trying to like navigate and like failing to navigate the sort of gossip and the pitfalls of this village that she lives in. I think the best way to describe how I just like immediately fell in love with this book is I'm going to just read you the first line. And I think this is maybe the best first line. Maybe the best first line that I've ever read. And so I thought that's why it would be good for this first episode. The day somebody McSomebody put a gun to my breast and called me a cat and threatened to shoot me was the same day the milkman died. Oh my God. Right? So many questions. That's just a cracking line. Like, somebody mix somebody? Is that a code name? Is that what the narrator's calling them? I don't know. I Like, why is he putting a gun to her? Why is he calling her a cat? What the fuck is that? And then threatening to shoot me. And then who's the milkman? Well, he's on the cover, so he must be important. And now we know he's dead, so why are we reading it? Why is he on the cover? I love books that start at the climax. Yeah. It's because I feel like then I'm like, right, I know what I'm in for. I just don't know how I'm going to get there. And that is exciting. It's unraveling the mystery. Obviously, because I went to school in Scotland, one of my favourite books is To Kill a Mockingbird. Because mm. um, we all had to read that. And it starts with James' broken arm. And then obviously we find out later that that happens at the climax. But by the time you get there, you've forgotten mm-hmm. that that was the first line. You forgot that James' arm ever gets broken and that that's why you're reading it. And the yeah. same the same thing really happens here where... By the time somebody McSomebody put a gun to her breast, I really had forgotten that that had even happened. And it really comes out of the blue. Yeah, it's just really, really well constructed. I think that's probably my main point about it. It's just the way that she's structured and unraveled the plot. It feels like she's in complete control. I think what I like about this is because I'm not really a plot gal, I like a good plot, but it's not what will make me read it the lack of plot really allows you to get into character and setting. So you get all the quirks of both this narrator and all the characters around her. And the book is really just explaining who they all are and all the different relationships between them. 
the main plot that ties it all together is this narrator is being stalked by Milkman, who isn't a Milkman. There's just so much in it that it kind of blew me away because it was like a huge, it was like world building. I think what I really liked about it as well is that it was just that and it didn't really try to be a lot more than that. You can get really into all these weird styles and structures with the language as well. Like, I'm pretty sure there's no quotation marks and everything is just in these big, giant, solid paragraphs. Which is why I'm saying it's not an easy read. So the structure of it's really interesting because it really, like, meanders. Because you'll have, like, an interaction and then you'll have the narrator's reaction to that inside her head. Done in a way that she knows she's got a reader. So mm-hmm. then she'll explain to you, okay, but first I need to tell you how this operates and like what this means and all the subtext for it. So then she takes you off on this mad tangent and you get so far into this mad tangent that you forget what the, the interaction's even been. And then she'll just just absolutely <laughs> freewheel it back to... And so anyway, that's what, that's what this meant. And then she'll carry on with the plot. And I found that a little bit jarring for the first couple of chapters because I was like, I hadn't encountered such tangents before. Like, obviously, in some Victorian novels and things like that, you get a bit of it, but nothing to that extent. This is like 50 pages of a tangent. But that's what I mean. The tangent is the content. It's not a long book, is it? No, it's about 300 pages. It's like an essay collection with a plot running through it. I don't know. it's, It's cool. And I think that would be really easy to get bored with, but she makes it funny and that's what keeps you reading it's not like haha funny I think especially being Scottish obviously it's not the same as Irish but in central Scotland we do have a lot of overflow culture from the troubles there's a lot to relate to in the book if you're from any sort of small town in Scotland like small town culture there's a whole sort of essay on the role of women in the village and how you've got like there's one that's like a feminist group and then there's the women. Both feminists are kind of ostracised. And this narrator is so analytical that it's just funny to see her narrate all of these things. I didn't highlight that many quotes from this just because they're all so long. And I feel like to get the impact, you really need to read pages and pages. But this quote is about real milkman. So there's milkman and then there's real milkman. And real milkman is the actual milkman of the village. So she's just had an encounter with Milkman, her stalker, and she's a little bit shaken. She says, First thing that happened was I got those shudders, although they died instantly upon realising that this was not the Milkman, but the other one instead. He was in his lorry, and it was a proper milk lorry, also the only vehicle I'd ever seen him in. I turned to face him as the handbrake went on. He opened his door and jumped out and came over towards me. Next thing he was beside me, and this hadn't been the first time he'd addressed me, but it was the first time he'd said more than the polite, customary few words. Normally these words were hello, goodbye, or tell your mother I was asking. Definitely, except for my real milkman and I didn't move in the same circles. And even then, apart from living in the same house as her, I didn't exactly move in Ma's circles. But with them two being close friends, it stood to reason I'd run across him at close quarters now and then. This would be on the street or outside our door or inside our parlour where Ma would have made special barley bread or one of her other sweet breads to share with tea with him. Sometimes too I'd see her in his lorry being dropped off home from the chapel or bingo or doing her messages, jumping out of his lorry and laughing as if she were 16. So these were the occasions when me and him would meet and we'd greet each other and exchange general nods or hellos and now he was asking again if I was alright. He asked if something had happened, if there was anything he could do for me. 
I nodded, though I had no idea to which question I was nodding. In truth, I had difficulty rationalising what it was I was feeling or even how socially to respond to any question. It seemed I'd just encountered four renouncers, because probably those concealed men had been renouncers, going off to do some deed most likely to make top billing on the news later on. Then there'd been the milkman, probably not Walter Mitty, but instead, as everyone said, another renouncer. And now here was real milkman, friend of my mother and one of the designated outlandish beyond the pales. We were standing on the cribby next to his lorry, which was next to the graveyard, and I noticed he looked at the bundled up bald of handkerchiefs I was holding between us. Then he stopped looking and returned his attention to my face. I said, because it came out, I need to go somewhere and leave this or bury it. It's a cat's head. Right, he said. Wow, that paints such a picture. Right? So, like, that's two pages. Yeah, and it's the tiniest interaction. Yeah, it's the tiniest that he's literally asked her if she's okay and she's explained every bit of her relationship with this man. Yeah. So that is how the whole book is, which is why I say that it's intense. But it's so worth it. Like, it's just... I've just never read anything like it. It's it's brilliant. And I think, like, then those moments of, like, it being really surreal, the events that do happen, like, she has literally got a cat's head in her hand at this point. Okay. Um, and I'm not going to spoil why, but she does. <laughs> I don't even know if I liked it. I just am so... I'm just so impressed with it. If you want something that's, like, nothing you've ever read, it's it's a good recommendation. It deals with the relationship between her and maybe boyfriend. He's called maybe boyfriend because she doesn't know if he's <laughs> her boyfriend. And that's yeah. that's the full extent of it, which I just think is really sweet. When she's narrating what they say to each other or what she thinks he will say to her, in her head she'll say, and I'll say, but maybe boyfriend, this, this, this. And he'll say, but maybe girl, this, 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 this. I think it's just little bits like that that make it modern because otherwise it could feel like it was written a really, like, a long time ago because it's set a while ago but those little uncertainties about like what's the state of our relationship it really endears you to this narrator and maybe boyfriend is the sweetest boy his story is just so sweet he collects car parts and all of his house just scattered with car parts because he has a house to himself even though he's 20 because his parents left to become ballroom dancing champions and now he only sees his parents on the TV. That's yeah. a good turn I wasn't expecting. <laughs> right? Like, there's so many little avenues like that in this book. Yeah. His character development, I'm trying not to give away any spoilers, but his mm. character development, there's a very, like, normal people vibe between the two of them across the book because there are a lot of sort of misunderstandings about what mm. they both want. But there's a twist with Maybe Boyfriend that just... I just need someone to read it so that I can talk about it. <laughs> so yeah, I'll stop gushing about it now and I'll try and organise my thoughts a bit more. <laughs> I'm sure there's like actual real rational thoughts in there. That's mostly what I'm going to say about the book itself. But I know that we were going to talk about our own writing. And I said at the start that this one kind of was what prompted me to start my novel. So I thought I'd just explain how that went. The reason that I've never really tried to write long form prose is that I never feel like I have a plot. I do so much with like images or little small instances of dialogue or going off on tangents. And I'd always just thought like, maybe I'm good at essays and poetry, but like, I'm not going to write long form prose. And then I read this and I was like, this is a novel made of essays. I can do that. So I think like, 
going off on a tangent and over describing minor details or like giving too much context to the things that I'd seen as pitfalls in my own writing but they are the things that I like to write the most and this was the first book that I've ever read that's so like overtly about those things mm-hmm. and it really obviously sidelines the plot as like a place to hang this like real stuff so that just kind of gave me the confidence to write the kind of prose that I like I so far have a whole chapter about the role of lollipop ladies in central Scotland society and one about carpet shops so yeah so I promise you it's, it's a really interesting book but I thought it was cool to have a book that inspired in that way by like showing you that you can do something and kind of showing you how to do it because Mm -hmm. I don't I don't think that I would have arrived at that on my own as like that's a thing I can do so yeah yeah well done Anna Burns you're very inspiring and so on that like I just wanted to ask you as an aside is there any are there any books like that for you or do you have any like doubts like that when you're coming to your writing or do you pretty much just be like I'm gonna write what I want? Good question so I think I grew up a lot reading genre books and I feel like when I came to uni I discovered the world of contemporary and modern fiction which I do like I do enjoy but I think I made a lot of my writing that kind of style I wrote a lot of personal essays or like fiction but it was from my perspective but since leaving uni or since leaving creative writing I still Mm. do English literature I've kind of lent more back into the genre world but I think that's where a lot of my anxieties come from with writing fantasy writing I think it's hard to be original Mm. (laughs) which is bizarre because fantasy means you can write about anything like, yeah, you can literally make something up and be like, that exists in my world. Whereas I, I quite like magical realism, which is set in the real world. It just yeah. has like fantasy elements. So I think I struggle with it in that sense. And I also struggle with plot. Mm. I like, I think we're quite similar, or at least it seems like you have a better grip of it now. But I can always think of scenes. I, I can think of bits and I can write those but it's the whole piece of them together that is my yeah question. definitely like, like writing the plot around them so I would love to do an episode about this book one day but The Starless Sea by mm-hmm. Erin Morgenstern I have never read a book like it before there's a, a whole narrative thread running through it there's a book within a book so there's like short story it's a book of short stories and mm-hmm. you know every second chapter you're getting a short story while this other narrative is running through it and I think that book made me realise well you can do the thing where you just have random snapshots yeah but you can make a plot that out of those yeah exactly so I I think that book definitely and as well I've mentioned her already but I love Cassandra Clare I I just like her style of writing she Mm. writes fantasy but it's all very grounded in reality at the same time bizarrely she makes it very lyrical and pretty which I like doing mm. as well but the starless sea is definitely the book that made me want to write a book like yeah I'm pretty sure I told you that when I started writing I was yeah like, I got an idea <laughs> it's because of this book so, I do yeah. I do remember that I remember you like writing the 
like there was a quote in the Starless Sea or something. You like wrote it out and you were like, I'm gonna. Yeah. Like, this yeah. is so cool. Well, yeah, that was my whole topic and my infatuation and my writing. But I just wanted your thoughts on that. So, mm-hmm. what would you like to talk about with your writing this week? So, I am actually going to mention Cassandra Clare again. I promise I won't mention her every episode. Don't make um, promises you can't keep. <laughs> I often write down quotes from books or Mm. like films or lyrics or whatever that I think will provide me with future inspiration. So I have a page in my notebook that I just keep going back to and add into it every now and then. And this is a topic that I feel like I could be a lot more in-depth about, but today I thought I would keep it simple and just use a specific example. So I'm going to share one of the quotes, I'm going to talk about why I even saved it, and then I'm going to talk about how I plan on using it. Nice. So yeah, the quote is from Cassandra Clare's newest book, Chain of Gold, and it is, tell me the name of the shadow that is always hanging over you. I can become a shadow. I can fight it for you. Oh. I know, right? That sounds like it should be in a song. Mm -hmm. I I told you, she's very lyrical. Like, yeah, yeah, it's great. So yeah, even without knowing the context of this quote, I think you can imagine the kind of relationship mm. that like would justify it. So in Cassie Clare's world, quotes like this can be quite literal. He can turn into a shadow. But it's also metaphorical, right? Mm. And it's that side of the quote that resonated with me. So it's between two people who deeply care for each other. One's holding on to this secret, this dark thing that's weighing them down. And the other character cares so much for them that they would literally do anything for them to like yeah. alleviate pain. So that's why I saved the quote, because in the novel I'm writing, I have two characters that feel so deeply for one another. And I thought this was a good example of encapsulating mm. that vibe. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so how would I use that? Obviously, when you write down a quote from someone else's work you're not going to use that in your book you're not going to steal yeah you're not going to plagiarize it but what I'm planning on doing is getting across that feeling of being willing to do absolutely anything for someone to do that you have to establish the relationship between your characters right I ask myself why does the character feel that way and I write that what about their relationship is special I'll write that I'll maybe write like scenes from I don't know their childhood or their past that will never make it into the book but it gives me an idea of that relationship and I also have to ask what those lengths are in my world so is it life or death Mm. or is it just more mundane they would sacrifice like a career or something you Mm. know like so every time I build upon those ideas I then go back to the quote and I'm like did I reach this emotion that I'm trying to get across oh my god you're so professional oh my god no I'm not (laughs) you're you're so like you know what you're about man this is so cool you're like interviewing yourself to make sure your story's good that's watertight I feel like um I can't write a character unless I really understand them inside out that's so interesting that's probably like the way you're supposed to feel about a character is just not how I feel about (laughs) mine Well, I like, like I was saying, when I was in uni doing creative writing, I I didn't really process it that way at all. But it's because it 
the character was never really important to what I was writing Mm. but I feel like with the kind of novel that I'm writing now the character is so important so I I think it depends on what you're writing but yeah I think for what I'm working on this is helping. So when you're inspired by other people's work I think it's a really good opportunity to ask yourself why yeah so you obviously feel a connection to it somehow so asking yourself all those questions means that you can enrich your story but you can also get to the root of why you like the quote in the first place I'm maybe just too introspective a person but <laughs> I no like I get that why I get so, yeah. that I, I spend a lot of time thinking about why I like things so. yeah so yeah when I was writing like this little section I realized how well it connects to what my topic was today mm. so Carrie Maniscalco is obviously inspired and influenced by a huge gothic tradition that came before her but she's clearly put in the work to both nod to the mm. tradition and break away from it she's a really good example I think I'm not saying that her process was the same as mine but I think mm. she's clearly looked at texts that came before her and thought why do I like this? Why do I want to write this genre? And what can I do different? The more that I speak to people that write, there do seem to be people that have whole worlds up in their head. And those yeah. are the types of people that write fantasy, right? Like you have, yeah, you, don't, you maybe so, yeah. don't have it all worked out, but you have whole worlds in your head. Um, and then obviously I do the sort of more like contemporary. My novel, by the way, has a fantasy element, mm-hmm. but like we'll get into that. It's like, it's very, <laughs> it's it's more magic realism than fantasy and I feel like when I'm writing it I'm I don't know the world that I'm creating or the characters until I'm writing it and then obviously when I'm going to redraft it then I'll know yeah I am still a bit like that like I don't fully know the world that I'm writing but I've written a lot of the emotional Mm. scenes and I'm kind of working out from those oh this is so interesting cool I'm glad that you shared that with me because I, I write down quotes that I like, but I'll yeah. like write them on a random page of my notebook or in my phone or like yeah. on my art and I'll forget why I wrote it Mo- down. Most of the time they are written in the notes on my phone, but I've started, you know, after I've accumulated a few, I end up writing them out just so they're all in the one place. For people that don't know, like you might think that this is fake, but like we've not really talked about our actual processes before. No, not really. No. And so like I didn't know she did that. And that's like so cool. <laughs> Look at us learning about each other after five years of friendship. How adorable. <laughs> Emily, what is your quick fire favourite for the week? My quick fire favourite, you're going to laugh, but it's Five Seconds of Summer related. Emily's so... obsessed with Five Seconds of Summer since this summer. Yeah, literally. My sister's been obsessed with Five Sauce for a year. I think since they came out, I'm assuming. Mm. And yeah, she's always tried to get me to listen to them, but I always found them too poppy. Not my style of music, but now they're a lot more like rock, like, oh. you know, like rock pop. Yeah. It's it's cool. I like them. Their new album, Calm, came out a few months ago now. And what I want to recommend today is their Carpel Carabloke which is their version of James Corden's yeah. karaoke. They are basically listening to their new album all the way through. It is really refreshing to see the band totally hype themselves up. They will stop and they'll be like, 
this album is so cool <laughs> i just really enjoy it it's very joyful <laughs> their car dancing is exquisite um, <laughs> <laughs> there's also like a bunch of funny moments they're australian so you know yeah aussies are funny we know yeah. that it's a really good way of seeing their personality and their vibe and me and my sister and i have a million in jokes from this one video so I feel like it's something once I've moved back into my flat and I'm not living with my sister anymore, I feel like I'm going to watch it to like remember the few good things about <laughs> this summer. <laughs> oh, I think it's really cute that you and your sister have got like close again. Yeah, like you weren't, weren't ever not close, but like. Oh, yeah. I think it's cute that you are like living together again. Yeah, my, my sister's not a good texter. No, uh, she's not. She's really shit. Ruth, get better. so yeah it's good actually getting to you know like talk to her Uh, it's Mm. nice um so yeah that's my recommendations it's 18 minutes long very funny good music good introduction to the album if you've never heard it before and yeah that's it what is your quick fire favorite this week my quick fire favorite has changed about five million times this week because i've been so into different things but what I finally settled on, because it blew me away, was yesterday, Phoebe Bridger's new album, Punisher, dropped. Oh, I and saw I have that. Been, I have been listening to the three singles from it over and over, and I am obsessed. We know I love a sad girl with a guitar. I was so excited when this dropped. I listened to this album three times, non-stop, back-to-back yesterday, and the, the quickfire favourite that I want to recommend is Moonsong by Phoebe Bridgers and I wanted to recommend it specifically to you because Emily loves the moon there was a line in it that just it reminded me of you because it's about the moon of you because it's just like a very romantic line and of you because it's how I also feel about you if I could give you the moon then I would give you the moon oh I love that right it's just so nice and it's so simple and like the music is beautiful and that's the bridge of the song it's the middle eight the whole song is beautiful but just that I literally like I I put my I put my cup of tea down like it just stopped me in my tracks I thought that's it was gorgeous that's how you know it's good if you put your <laughs> cup of tea down nothing stops me from drinking my tea but Phoebe Bridgers <laughs> did so yeah I would really recommend I'd recommend the whole album but that song is a current favorite love it so, I will definitely listen to that We're titling this uh, section Rebecca's Rants because <laughs> Rebecca loves a rant. <laughs> I really feel like I've got a talent that's not being shown to the world. And this is, <laughs> this is my platform. Here is how it took me 35 minutes to buy four pints of milk in Bonnie Bridge, Central Scotland today. So this morning I got up early because I had to take my car for an MOT. It's never a pleasant thing that we have to do, but there we go. So luckily my car garage is within walking distance of my house. So I dropped my car off. I was walking back. It was raining. I feel this is important to the story. So on the way back, I remembered that we needed milk because I used the last of it in my cinnamon grahams because I'm an adult. (laughs) (laughs) There's a little petrol garage up the top of our street that's basically like our corner shop. So I thought I'll nip in there. 
and I'll get some milk. I even had my wee mask, so I was mm-hmm. all corona safe. It was good times. <laughs> I went to go into there. Now, bear in mind, I'm on foot, so I went in via the pedestrian path and not through the forecourt that the cars come on. There is a fucking pedestrian path. Let's get that clear. I get to the door and I read all the signs on the door and I've read them all before, but there was a new one and it said groups of two maximum. And I'm like, that's fine. That's the only new sign. And I'm a group of one. So we're good to go. So I go in and it's tiny anyway. So it's hard to distance. There are two social distancing dots in this garage because that's how tiny it is. And lo and behold, there's three middle-aged laggerlouts fumbling about backwards and forwards ignoring the dots ignoring the one way ignoring me which was fine and they're just like running about like toddlers I finally managed to like go past them as far away from them as I can which is not that far I get my milk I get my little extra bits that I need I get into the queue which is them all clustered at one side and me hovering over the other side they decide to look at me a 25 year old female them three giant men and they decide to make smart comments about my mask because obviously they're not wearing any they take ages and ages at the till and then they finally leave get to the till the woman rings up my stuff i produce my card which is the only thing i have because it's contactless and this is a contactless transaction that we're trying to undergo here because there's a pandemic the woman i shit you not she draws me the dirtiest look and she goes card machine's broken like, as if I was meant to know this. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like, this is my fault. I broke her card machine. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, sorry. I checked all the signs on the door. I didn't see. And she goes, still with the stain, by the way. They're on the forecourt. This woman is middle-aged, right? She's this middle-aged, scraggly boot of a woman. <laughs> but she's, like, saying this as if she's the fucking gum popper checkout girl in an American sitcom. It really... So I was like, oh... Well, I came in the pedestrian entrance, so might be an idea to put one on the door. Thanks anyway. Also, I'd like to point out that there was a big fuck off screen in front of her with Mm -hmm. nothing on it. Nothing (laughs) at all. Cash only. That's all it needed to say. Just a wee bit of paper. Cash only. No, nothing. Apparently that's too much forward thinking for this woman. Mm. Cool. So left there. Still need milk though. So it's still raining. So then I walked down the village main street to the wee Tesco. That's fine. Goes in. It's a wee bit more civilised here. Everyone's social distancing. We love that. I get my milk again. I'm standing on the wee floor dot right before the checkout. And then I look to my right and it's right in front of the fucking staff door. Who puts the dot there? So the woman comes out with a trolley full of sock. Like this wee woman comes like backing out. It's not her fault that the dot's there and I'm there. But like, so I'm looking at her with this gesture as if to say, which way are you going? You know, the universal what way you going gesture. And I'm like, clearly going to move. And she just plows through me. Nay social distancing. No, plows through me. And then she brays right across my fucking face. Can somebody go to the till, please? Then another lassie comes out, but I'm reeling at this point yeah. from the saliva on my face. Yeah. And so this other lassie's obviously behind me and I haven't heard her. But instead of using words like a normal functioning human being, she touches my shoulder and just moves me out the way. Because I'm like, we're just not social distancing in Bonnie Bridge. And so I go 
really sarcastically, oh, sorry. And she goes, oh, no, you're right, doll. Like, are you shitting me? I know I'm all right. I got to the till. I got my milk. I left. I got home. It took me 35 minutes. And a tenfold increase in my risk of infection, by the way, to get four pints of semi-skimmed in this backwoods town. And that's my rant for today. What the actual fuck? Why don't you bring some light to the situation? Yeah. So this is my little section of the podcast, which I've named M's Insight. She's Mystic Um, Meg, but better. Yeah. So I, I should probably give a tiny bit of context to this. I'm not saying I'm a psychic. (laughs) (laughs) I have actually been told that I have a psychic sensitivity or something, and I'm just like, okay, I won't argue with that. I just really like reading Zodiac stuff. Like, I think the personality side Mm. of it, I just find fascinating. I also just like random things like tarot, and I've recently discovered auras, and that's a whole thing. Uh, It's it's very you. Yeah, I'm going to... (laughs) <laughs> you're gonna laugh so much at this but I think I'm gonna learn how to read auras <laughs> me. <laughs> so anyway me and Rebecca both follow this Instagram account called CoStar oh, um, and I I think you must have the app at some point because I have you like as a friend on it but they have an app and they have a tab on it that's about like your compatibility with your friends so I had to wee look at ours today there is, turns out, a horoscope for us as a couple every day, apparently. So as a couple, all of that. As a couple, as a couple of people. <laughs> <laughs> Don't hide our love. <laughs> but I, I didn't want to read that today. I thought I would read a little thing, which is about our sun sign. So I'm mm. a Pisces, you're a Taurus. Because I think this little section just sums up us perfectly and is good introduction you know, to our listeners of, of what we are like and how okay. we interact with each other. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm dreading this now. <clears throat> right. Your son is in Pisces, meaning you are fundamentally dreamy, insightful, and in your own world. You exist on a chaotic plane of the divine that is not at all material. <laughs> your rich imagination endows you with a strong intuition for hidden emotional currents. When you take offence, it is deeply, and you aren't necessarily interested in reconciliation. Their son, so your son, is in Taurus, meaning they are fundamentally stable, deliberate and practical, though somewhat stubborn. Their sensual side takes comfort and pleasure very seriously. You appreciate nice things when they're useful and meaningful. (laughs) (laughs) Emily, can we get this throw over? It's People appreciate how reliable they are. This can be an outstanding match. You both move through life with gentleness, romance and care. They could provide you with stability to keep you from getting lost in emotion. You could help develop their imagination to move beyond the practical realm. They will need to be careful not to ground you so much that it shatters your dreamy nature. And you need to make sure not to set your expectations of them too high. Cool. Great. Love that not offended by that at all. <laughs> no I think that's very accurate though I like the bit about us moving through with like gentleness and romance I feel like that's what we're about yeah I think that is very true no you wouldn't get that from my rant but like that is most- <laughs> that was my outlet otherwise I'm very nice exactly exactly but no I, I think that's yeah that's accurate and like you are such a dreamy little soul 
<laughs> you, you do exist on a chaotic plane. Of the divine. Of the divine. <laughs> I feel like that's a good reference to, you should just look up our logo and then listen to that. And then you've got yeah. us. So this is our tell me something I don't know. Yes. So I think we will probably normally ask for questions on our social media. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can email us if you have a question. It's infatuatedpodcast.outlook.com. But this week I just asked one of my friends <laughs> to send us one so that we could, you know, get started. This is from Alice, my Liverpudlian angel as a friend. <laughs> So it is, if you could interview a famous person, who and what would you ask? Oh, that's a good one. Will I go first? Because I've sort of had a minute to think about it. I've not. Yeah. The first person who came to my mind, because I just find him fascinating, is Darren Brown. Oh, yeah. What would I ask him, though? I mean, I'd probably ask him if I could work for him. But he just knows so much about magicians entertainers that have come before him he knows a lot about the victorian occult which i find <laughs> quite fascinating <laughs> like, yeah. i don't know i just feel like i'd I'd want to just ask him to tell me everything that he knows he just seems like a very fascinating person to have a conversation with yeah that's fair i vibe with that and i, I like you like you watch darren brown a lot so i feel yeah. like you'd get a lot out of that conversation yeah, I think so. <laughs> I'm gonna have to say we know I'm gonna have to say Taylor Swift oh yeah because like if I could have the opportunity to speak to her then that's who I'd pick but what I would ask her do you know I'd really love to talk to her about books I'm sure someone on the internet has asked her what her favorite book is but I'd love to be like what are you reading now what do you think about it because she's so her writing has just got such a like literary and like poetic lyrical Mm -hmm. feel to it and I know that she reads a lot of books, but she never really mentions what she's reading. Yeah, I was going to ask, does she, does she talk about books? Well, not really. She sort of, she doesn't talk about books overtly, but she, like, on her, like, Vogue 73 questions, when she was asked, like, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? She said, like, probably, like, an English major. All right. So okay, we, know, okay. we know that she reads a lot. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe the question I'd ask, she's got a line in one of her songs that says, now I've read all of the books beside your bed. And so I'd maybe ask what books are beside your bed because I'd just be interested. Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like those were quite representative of us answers. Good question. Yeah, I think... yeah, that is the first episode finished. If you've got any questions for us or any comments, please email us at infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. You can follow us on social media. I'll just leave all the links in the show notes. And yeah, subscribe to us. Leave a tell, uh, tell us if you can understand us if you're not from Scotland. That's true. I hope I was speaking slow enough today. <laughs> I, I really didn't even think about that till now and I probably <laughs> haven't been. But I'll slow down if we have anyone who can't understand me yeah we can do that also apologies if there's any sound issues yeah this is our first one also i know i swear a lot so we should probably put that in the in the show notes too. yeah i'll mark it as explicit (laughs) (laughs) 
so yeah well thank you anyone who listened to this i hope you got something out of it i imagine that it will get better with time but thank you emily for conceiving this baby of a show um (laughs) and for agreeing (laughs) (laughs) and for all your amazing little insights on books and writing and stuff and hopefully we will do this again next week yes see you